Okay, so I'll move this down. Sorry, one sec while I get all situated. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, this is our final TNF. Um, I know finals finals are maybe just you know a bit of a stress for y'all this already or upcoming this week. So why don't we just all you know take a few deep breaths together in preparation to hear God's word. Okay, cool. Hope that was your life. <laughs> okay, so for our final sermon in this series, I'm going to be talking about um, Jonah, but uh, the book of Jonah. But before that, I wanted just to have y'all um, some shout outs of what has been our sermon series about, and can you shout out just some stories that we've talked about so far? Yeah, give a shout out. Yeah, Samson. Absalom. Absalom. Moses. 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 Stephen, really Stephen, what is our sermon series called?
small prophetic books in scripture, starting with Hosea and then ending with Malachi, that are referred to as the Minor Prophets. And Jonah is the fifth book of the Minor Prophets. Um, but the book of Jonah is not a typical prophetic book that contains like a spoken message from God. It's more of like a narrative about a prophet. So what I mean is that, so a lot of the prophets, they start out with, and the word of the Lord came to Amos, and then he said this, 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 all these are the words of God. But the book of Jonah starts out with, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and then Jonah, this is what he did. He doesn't, doesn't tell you the words necessarily, well he does eventually, but it tells you a story about what Jonah did with hearing the words of God. So also, um, I'll just take a little moment to talk about genre in scripture, like literary style. Jonah has quite a unique literary style in scripture. So there's different, there's different genres and literary, literary styles used in scripture, such as poetry, there's apocalyptic literature, narrative storytelling and prophecy, there's even you know, letters as we you know, read in the New Testament. And it's really important that we read a book of scripture according to its genre. So for instance, a lot of us saw the Hunger Games movie just recently. So the Hunger Games books are narrative fiction, right? They're not telling a real story, they're telling a narrative of a fictitious story. They're not intended to be read as historical accounts, you know? Um, in the same way, like an autobiography about Anne Frank, Frederick Douglass or something, those are meant to be a factual storytelling of someone's life. And they're not meant to be read as, oh, this is just a fictional story or this is a poem or something. So, you know, so it's really important that we read a story or, you know, some type of literature according to its genre. So there's two main ideas that scholars have about what literary style Jonah is. Some scholars believe that Jonah is a historic account of real events, and other scholars believe Jonah is a satirical narrative about a historical figure rather than a historical account. So, you know, I'd encourage you to do some research, read it on your own, and kind of come to your own thoughts about that. But yeah, as a satire, you'll notice that Jonah has a lot of irony and exaggerated storytelling styles, and usually satire is used, um, uses exaggeration and irony to point out something or you know, to draw attention to some flaw or like criticize something about society or politics or whatever. Um, so Jonah definitely uses satire. Um, but yeah, I encourage you to just do some of your own research in that. Whatever the case is, if it's historical account or if it's a narrative, you know, storytelling, um, I think we can find a valuable lesson in Jonah. And that is that Jonah is not a prophet to model our lives after, um, but rather Jonah is an example of how Israel and even we ourselves do right in our own eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes by withholding God's mercy from our enemies. That was a lot, but um, hopefully you'll see what I mean. Hopefully, oh, this is also my, I found this on the internet. Um, <laughs> that is the fish. And that's Jonah being very upset um, after this end of the story. So, okay, let's jump into the story. Okay, so as I said, Jonah begins the same way as many of the other prophets. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah's response is much different from the prophets. Um, he says, it says that Jonah uh, ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, so going back to verse 1, um, if we're going to read this as if we were, you know, an Israelite person, um, they would already recognize Jonah because he's actually mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. He uh, prophesizes, prophesies to a one of the corrupt kings. Yeah, so there's like kind of good and bad kings, and he actually prophesies in favor of one of the corrupt kings. So we already know that Jonah is kind of disreputable. Uh, he's not the best prophet already. And then also, his name Jonah means dove, and Amittai, is says son of Amittai, means faithfulness. So his name is Dove, son of faithfulness. And we already know that's a joke because he is not a faithful prophet. He is, has a bad reputation. Um, he's already shown himself to be that way. And in the unfolding of the story, hopefully you'll see just how much of a joke this is that he's called Dove, son of faithfulness because he's very unfaithful. Okay, so let's look at a map just to see just how unfaithful he was. So it says that um, he was supposed to go to Nineveh. He's from this place called Gath-Hefer, which we know from Second Kings. So he's supposed to go to Nineveh, but he actually goes south down to Joppa, and then he gets on a boat going all the way to Tarshish, which is like the furthest, that's like modern-day Spain. So he's going like furthest west that you can, yeah, furthest west you can possibly go. It's like the last port before like the end of the world, you know? There's like just a giant ocean after that. So he's going like literally, like if, how we say like, oh, when they go to Timbuktu, like he's going to Timbuktu, like so far away. Um, so then he gets on the boat, he's with these sailors, and then there comes this like giant storm. It says a great wind came, and all the sailors are like crying out to their gods, and they're like, please help us, we need, you know, we need help. And then they go down, Jonah's sleeping. So like one of the sailors comes out and he's like, Jonah, like, what are you doing? Wake up, like cry out to your God too, because we're gonna die. And so he wakes up Jonah and it's not working. And so then they cast lots. So that's kind of like um, drawing the shortest straw or like rolling dice or something. They like cast lots to figure out like, okay, who's the one causing the storm? Like one of us did something wrong that's causing this great wind to happen. So it says, next slide. So they asked him, oh, the, the lot falls to Jonah. So they're like, okay, it's his fault. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, because they're in the ocean, and this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them. So they're like, this is bad. Um, Jonah tells them, why don't y'all just throw me overboard? It'll save, you know, stop the storm. Um, which might seem like sacrificial courage, you know, like, oh, just, just throw me in the water. But, you know, how far, you can't really get much further from God's will for you than just deciding, oh, I'll just be in the bottom of the ocean. You know, you can't get much further from him as that. So is it really courage or is it cowardice, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
They're like, no, let's try to row back to shore, but the storm just gets even worse. And so the sailors are like, you know what, I guess let's throw them in the ocean. So they cry out to God for forgiveness. They're like, sorry for what we're about to do. They throw Jonah into the ocean. Don't know why he can't just jump himself, but they have to throw him into the ocean. And immediately the storm stops. Um, then the sailors are like, whoa, they fear the Lord after that. They worship other gods, but now they fear the Lord. They offer sacrifices and they make the vows to God. So we all maybe know what happens next. Um, Jonah's in the ocean, and it says, next slide, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and there's kind of this long little prayer you can go and read yourself. And the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Okay, so we can look at the map again. If you look at it, um, I feel like this just brings the story of Jonah to life. Um, it's pretty essential. He's headed this way, and the fish, assumably, assumably, presumably, just takes Jonah back to the other side, where he can now go preach to Nineveh. So um, it says the word of the Lord. He's back on the shore of the side of Nineveh, and it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He said, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So this time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's like his whole message. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which is kind of like a rough fabric that's uncomfortable and, I guess, makes you feel repentant and bad. Um, yeah, so just notice how quickly this wicked nation, you know, um, it says their wickedness came up before me, how, how quickly they receive the word of God. And it says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, so it's spread through the city, finally gets to the king, the king rises from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they had done and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So we know that Nineveh is a wicked city because it said, um, you know, in the beginning, um, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire that eventually overtook the northern tribes of Israel. And also in Nahum, another one of the prophets, at the end of it, it says, for who has not, talking about Nineveh, for who has not felt their endless cruelty? So they're bad, they're bad. You know, they're like this giant empire and they're very cruel, apparently. And God has had enough of it. But he gives them this opportunity and wants Jonah to go tell them, you know, like 40 more days and you'll be overturned unless you repent. And they do it. Um, yeah, even the animals repent. But the question still remains, 
Why did Jonah run from God? Why did he not want to go to Nineveh to, you know, share with them God's message? And then he tells us in the next um, little section. To Jonah, this all seemed very wrong. He did not want them to repent, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I told you, Lord, when I said when I was still at home? This is what I tried for Saul by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah knew that God was compassionate and gracious. He knew he was slow to anger and abounding in love and ready to show mercy, even to Jonah's enemies. And this is why Jonah didn't want to share the Lord's message with the Ninevites. He didn't want them to receive God's mercy. In fact, he would rather die than for the Ninevites to repent and the Lord have mercy on them. So the story goes on. Um, the Lord replied to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. So he's still waiting to see. Maybe God will still destroy the city. And then the Lord provided, while he was sitting out there in the heat, the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, the Lord provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. <laughs> yeah, so when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So Jonah's very upset um, that God is merciful to the Ninevites and so angry that he wants to die. But he's still just watching, waiting, like, maybe God will destroy the city still. <laughs> but yeah, despite Jonah's awful behavior, his unmerciful attitude, the Lord is still gracious to him and grows a plant, you know, to provide some shade for his head. And then, you know, the plant withers and um, the Jonah becomes angry that, you know, the plant's gone and now it's hot. <laughs> and so God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been, the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, but you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals? And that's how the story ends. So the Lord is concerned for the people in the city, and even the animals. And Jonah is only concerned with his own comfort in making sure that the Ninevites get what they deserve. So Jonah is an Israelite and a prophet, yet by the end of the story, he is the most hateful and unmerciful character, and the only character who has not repented. Wishing you were dead rather than showing mercy to your fellow humans is a heart full of hate. 
And it's really all just, you know, about heart posture. He believes he is deserving of something from God that the Ninevites are not deserving of. And Jonah has a beautiful and merciful God who shows mercy to him even when Jonah really doesn't deserve it, you know, when he's so angry um, and being unmerciful to other people. Yet Jonah refuses to show that same mercy to the Ninevites. Somehow he's figured that God's mercy is only for him. And that he deserves it. In this story, the one who is supposed to represent God's people is the one getting further and further away from God. While everyone else in the story, the sailors, the Ninevites, and even the animals, you know, they, they are getting closer and closer to God. The ones who were furthest from God are getting closer and closer. And Jonah, who is supposed to represent Israel, is getting further and further away. And this is, um, you know, kind of like what Drew had mentioned a few weeks ago in his, his sermon. It's not about who's in the circle, per se. It's about who's facing God. One person might be, you know, right next to God, but they're facing away from him. You know, but someone else might be really far away, but they're facing towards God. And who in that picture is closer to him? So Jonah's getting further and further away, further away, while the Ninevites and the sailors are getting closer. Mm-hmm. And the story of Jonah is really just a telling of the whole story of Israel. The people of Israel are meant to be a blessing to all nations. And God says in Genesis 12 um, to Abraham, He says that He wants them to He will bless them, and that through them all nations will be blessed. They are blessed to be a blessing to all people. But they are neglecting their divine calling, and they are, they're meant to be a light to all nations, but they are rejecting their mission. Just think about, you know, the stories that we talked about. Y'all mentioned Samson and Absalom. Samson was supposed to be, you know, set apart for the Lord, yet he is faithless, and he misuses the gifts that God gives him, chases after women in power, and he creates destruction wherever he goes. And Absalom didn't trust in God, um, but he took things into his own hands by trying to pursue justice for Israel in his own way and not in God's way. And then in Jonah, we see yet again an example of God's people abandoning their calling to be a blessing. He represents the faithlessness of Israel. Um, So this is a message to the Israelites that they are missing God's greater vision which is for the redemption and the forgiveness of all people, including Israel's enemies. Jonah did right in his own eyes by withholding the mercy of God from people. He felt that he didn't deserve it, even though he himself was undeserving of God's mercy. God never intended for his blessings to be only for the Israelites. In Isaiah 56, and Jesus also quotes the scripture, Oh, actually, not that one. In Isaiah 56, he says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love his name, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain. He says, Foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will still gather others to them besides those already gathered. 
Jesus actually does quote that. I was wrong. Um, he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just the Israelites. He always meant for the people of Israel to be a beacon of hope through whom he would gather every nation to himself. And that's what he did through Jesus. God's plan has always been about restoration for the whole world, not just for one group of people. And he chooses to work through people to bring about that redemption and restoration. But people often take matters into their own hands and do what seems right to them. And this is when the people of God start looking like the people of the world. So then how can we recognize Jonah today? Let me drink some water again. How can we recognize Jonah today? So in the same way that we can see the Israelites in Jonah, if we take a close look, we can also see Jonah in ourselves. It's often subtle, and you may not see it at first. Um, it takes reflection. Um, but when you look at your inner motivations, your, your heart, you'll begin to see Jonah in your own heart. And I think this looks like when we refuse to reconcile with someone who hurt us, when we choose not to address how someone made us feel in the full forgiveness because we don't want to be uncomfortable, when we hold on to bitterness against someone. Um, it's when we, bitterness is when you decide, instead of seeking reconciliation or seeking understanding or having a clarifying conversation, it's when you decide to hold on to a mental picture of a person that, you know, well, they're just mean, they're just judgmental, they're arrogant, they're just stupid, they're unthoughtful, they're just hateful. And we reduce them to just, just that one thing, just how they hurt us, instead of seeing the fuller picture of who that person is and how we might offer mercy to them. Because it's just easier than having a forgiving heart or a clarifying conversation of what they really meant, what they really said. And sometimes, you know, people do, really do mean to hurt us. Um, sometimes people hurt us on accident. Um, and those can be handled a little differently, but either way, you know, we still have to offer mercy to people. It's when we don't tell people how a certain behavior comes across because we're too afraid of confrontation. It's merciful to tell people things in a loving way that, hey, when you do this, it often makes me feel this way. Or, hey, when you say X, Y, Z, it makes, tends to make people feel, you know, like this. It tends to make people feel bad. Some of us dwell on mean and critical thoughts about other people. Probably a lot of us, majority of us. We're aware that it's a problem, but we're not exactly doing anything about it. Um, we, we, you know, but we need to take these thoughts captive. Um, don't just entertain critical thoughts about people. Take it seriously and repent. You can tell God cares about people and he cares most how we treat other people. It's just how parents care about how their, you know, one child treats their other child. God cares about how his children treat each other and think about each other. So we shouldn't be apathetic about how we think about people. As the people of God, we can't entertain thoughts like those that are against other people. And um, yeah, I struggle with this a lot. Um, the past few years of my adult life, I've spent time unlearning patterns of holding on to bitterness and resentment in my own heart 
and that I just kind of learned growing up. I just learned, oh, just, you know, something hurts me, I'll just bottle, bottle it up and store that bitterness in my heart. And then I realized, oh, I've been holding on to this bitterness for two, five, ten years, you know, against someone. Um, I felt so angry before at people who were close to me that I think it would be better maybe for us just to not speak anymore than for me to just have a conversation with them. And the parallel between my heart and Jonah's heart in those instances is really scary. That I would come to a place where I feel that bitter against someone or that, you know, unwilling to show mercy. But my big fish <laughs> that carries me across back to Nineveh is friends who keep encouraging me to have conversations with, you know, those people. Um, and I eventually, you know, I eventually did have those conversations. And from the outcome, I'm so glad that I did. You know, those relationships are much better now. You know, God is merciful, so who am I to withhold mercy from someone? And just, in my head, hold one image of them that's, you know, the negative way that they hurt me, and reduce them just to that image. So just like the Israelites, we are part of God's plan for redemption of the whole world. Yeah, the whole world. We're part of his plan for redemption. We may think immediately that that means, okay, I have to go, you know, overseas. I have to go preach the gospel and, you know, preach Jesus to people. And yes, that's good. We should do those things. But why don't we start with just being merciful to our brothers and sisters, to our classmates, you know, to our family. Have a conversation with that corner member or that friend or that roommate and offer them mercy. Who are we to withhold mercy um, when God has been so merciful to us? God shows us mercy when we're undeserving, just like he showed Jonah mercy when he was undeserving. But unlike Jonah, we must let God's mercy shape us into merciful people. Don't let the mercy of God, you know, don't take it for granted. Take it and show mercy to others. So in the story of Jonah, I think it's clear that God is the real hero. You know, it's not a story about Jonah and the big whale. It's not a story about Jonah's, you know, mainly about his unmerciful heart. Uh, this is a story about God's merciful heart. We should take the story of Jonah as a sober reminder to check the state of our own heart. You know, are we forsaking the mission of Jesus and doing what's right in our own eyes by withholding God's mercy? when it has been so freely given to us. As we finish off the school year, um, I just want us to think, just have some time of reflection. So as we finish out the school year, what conversations do you need to have? Who do you need to show mercy to? What words do you need to say um, to a person or persons? What do you need to forgive people for from your heart? Who do you need to say I'm sorry to? And then when you go back home for the break, what will it look like for you to be a vessel of God's mercy? Who's specifically in your family or in your friend group back home needs to be shown God's mercy? So I want us to just spend a few time, a few times, a few minutes in reflection and just thinking of those people and how we can show mercy to them. So if you want to pull out a journal or notes on your phone, just think of a person or a few